Hier komen we in vreemd. Welcome to Red Flag Radio. I'm Chloe Rafferty. And I'm Emma Norton. We're recording this podcast on Gadigal land, land that was stolen, never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And today we're discussing the ongoing genocide in Gaza. Later in the episode, we have an interview with Josh Lees, uh, who is one of the organisers of the massive protests here in Sydney, um, organised by Palestine Action Group um, in solidarity with Palestine. Uh, he spoke in front of uh, the crowd of 50,000 people about Israeli crimes against the Palestinians. Yeah, and with Josh, we're going to be discussing the idea of the two-state solution, which has been bandied about quite a lot recently. It's the official position of both the US and Australian governments and the UN. But as socialists, we have a critique of this supposed solution and a criticism of how the slogan has been used and abused to keep the Palestinians subjugated. But first, we wanted to talk about developments over the past few weeks. As of today, uh, November 7, over 10,000 people have been killed by Israel in Gaza, with thousands more trapped beneath rubble and unaccounted for. Literally no one is safe in Gaza. Uh, The UN, uh, which runs hospitals and schools in Gaza's refugee camps, has reported that 88 of their own staff have been killed, the highest number in any conflict ever. Yeah, it's absolutely true that nowhere in the Gaza Strip is safe. The BBC have actually verified that Israel has been telling people to flee to particular areas, often by airdropping leaflets with maps that literally point to specific areas in the south, uh, particularly cities like Khan Yunus and Rafah. But Israel have then bombed these supposed safe zones, killing hundreds of people who they have told to flee there. And this has happened at least four times in the BBC's research, at least, up to the 25th of October. Uh, But for Palestinians, this has become such a widespread pattern that now when they are told by Israel to flee to some area, many are refusing to do so, realising that uh, they won't be safe no matter where they go. And it's important to remember that this war is not just taking place in Gaza. Uh, the settler violence has become uh, even more extreme in the West Bank too. Uh, Palestinian families are now unable to leave their homes in much of the West Bank um, uh, without being shot by settlers um, or IDF soldiers. And they are being deprived of vital supplies and services and are unable to work um, or secure their livelihoods. So the West Bank, even before October 7, uh, was already like a prison. The Israelis have set up uh, a so-called sterile areas where Palestinians are not allowed to enter. There are checkpoints everywhere, security cameras everywhere, uh, employing facial recognition software, and Palestinians are asked to present their identification multiple times a day. And now it's like the inmates uh, of the West Bank have been put in solitary confinement and settlers are using this opportunity to steal even more Palestinian land and homes. Yeah, and as we've spoken about before, Western support for Israel has been an ongoing factor in this war. The US government, Australia and many others have refused to even vote for a symbolic ceasefire motion at the UN. In the last week, the sheer scale of the massacre in Gaza and the deep unpopularity of Israel's war has led to a slight shift in rhetoric amongst these countries, though. Biden came out last week to ask for a so-called humanitarian pause in Israel's massacre. Uh, but he made damn sure that this wasn't interpreted as any kind of criticism of Israel. And White House spokesperson uh, John Kirby said last week uh, that we're not drawing red lines for Israel. We're going to continue to support them. And support them they have. US aid has continued to flow into Israel. 
$14.3 billion is uh, only the most recent package. And when asked about the uh, su- supposed pause, Biden said that it was only to allow American citizens out of Gaza and to try and get the Israeli hostages out. In other words, uh, to pause the shelling long enough to get yeah, Israelis and Americans out so Israel can quickly resume the genocide um, of Palestinians. And Albanese and Penny Wong um, have also had this line about a humanitarian pause. And let's be real, this is all just an ass-covering exercise to pretend they care a bit about Palestinian life while continuing to offer 100% support to Israel. Yeah, and we also wanted to talk about the history of the UN because a lot of people can see how outrageous the actions of like the US government and our government is, but can place their faith in institutions like the UN, which seem a bit better. They've, they're known to have moved a bunch of motions over the years against Israel's illegal settlements. But I think it's worth saying that these motions are really crocodile tears. The UN played a key role in setting up the racist state of Israel uh, from the very beginning. So in 1947, the British asked the UN to resolve the question of Palestine and they set up a special committee on Palestine, uh, which deliberated for a short while. And that committee was heavily influenced by the two major imperialist powers after World War II, the US and the USSR, both of whom had an interest in promoting a new Zionist state in the Middle East, hoping that in the long run, it would serve their interests in the region. So what came out of all of this was that the UN, without ever asking the Palestinians, came up with a plan to partition Palestine into two states. Contrary to all the principles of democracy and self-determination, the UN rubber-stamped the creation of a Jewish ethno-state, completely ignoring the wishes of the majority of the population. So in their plan, Israel was handed 55% of the land, capturing, it's important to note, the most arable and fertile land of Palestine. They were also meant to have many of the large cities and villages where Palestinians were actually still a majority. So the UN partition plan effectively greenlit the ethnic cleansing process, which followed in 1948, even though its architects were surprised by just how far that process went. Basically, the Zionists appreciated that the UN had recognised the right of Jews to their own state in Palestine, but simultaneously they decided to completely ignore the borders set out for it. So David Ben-Gurion, who led the Zionist militias and became Israel's first prime minister, said explicitly that the borders of Israel, quote, would be determined by force and not by the partition resolution. And that's exactly what happened. We've talked about it uh, in previous podcasts, but Israel seized 78% of the land and ethnically cleansed 700,000 Palestinians. Now, the UN, after the fact, acted somewhat shocked by this, but this didn't stop them from giving Israel full membership to the UN in 1949 without conditions, while Palestine, even today, is not recognised as a member state. Yeah, and since the 1967 war, um, where Israel really showed its military might against Egypt, Syria and Jordan, the US has really been Israel's key and biggest backer, uh, sending it hundreds of billions of dollars in military aid. And the UN's conduct has reflected this. Um, They have moved various ineffective motions condemning Israel's occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, But the US has always moved to veto any Security Council motion that criticizes Israel. And they have done this at least 53 times since the 1970s. And Australia really isn't much better. They have abstained or voted down almost every motion uh, in the UN criticizing Israel. Yeah, so I think while many people look to the UN as this kind of neutral international institution that enforces humanitarian law, the reality is that it just reflects the priorities of the most powerful country in it, countries in it, particularly the US. You know, so it can condemn Israel so long as that has no real effect on anything. 
But when UN actions have had a real impact on the world, like they did in 1947, they are absolutely appalling. So today around the world, supporters of Palestine um, have rallied around the demand for a ceasefire and condemned the callousness of world leaders who have refused to even call for this modest demand, particularly in things like uh, the UN vote. I think it's obviously a good thing that we've seen mass demonstrations and sit-ins, you know, particularly in places like New York and London, uh, chanting ceasefire now. I can't actually remember a time when we have seen this level of international solidarity with Palestine. Uh, But I think for revolutionary socialists, we need to say that calling for a ceasefire right now is inadequate. And calling for a ceasefire implies that there is some equal conflict going on between two militaries as opposed to a genocidal bombardment of an overwhelmingly civilian population. So um, Israel would like to end Gaza in this moment, reducing the densely populated strip to rubble. Um, And, you know, uh, some have called for, you know, forcing the Gazans uh, to become refugees once again and to flee into the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. Or at the very least, drive the Gazan population to the south of the Gaza Strip, making the north an uninhabitable buffer zone. I think in this context, calling for a ceasefire is inadequate because it says nothing about what would happen to Gaza after a ceasefire or what would happen to the Palestinians more broadly once this particular war, this episode of the 75-year process of occupation and ethnic cleansing, um, this episode has ended. And I think that the fact that some countries um, and some world leaders um, who have quite normal diplomatic relations with Israel, such as France, Egypt, and New Zealand, uh, can call for a ceasefire and vote for it in the UN actually demonstrates how modest um, and inadequate this demand is. So the left didn't call for a ceasefire uh, during the Vietnam War. We called for troops out of Vietnam and an end to the war. And the anti-capitalist left doesn't call for a ceasefire in the face of a genocide. We call for an end to Israel's war on Gaza, an end to the siege on Gaza, and ultimately to the dismantling of the occupation and the dismantling of Israel's apartheid state, which is what we're going to talk more about uh, this episode. So I think that this is an important role the socialist left is playing um, in this particular moment. So when tens of thousands of people in this country and millions around the world are taking action to support Palestine, uh, that we don't just limit ourselves to partial demands, but actually demand the total liberation of Palestine and talk about what it would take to get there. Our across the world. I'm here with Josh Lees, one of the organisers of the massive Palestine Solidarity rallies here in Sydney. Josh has been a revolutionary socialist and a member of Socialist Alternative since he got involved in protests against the Iraq War quite a long time ago. So a long history of anti-war activism uh, all the way up to today. Hi, Josh. Thanks for joining me. Hello, Emma. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about the two-state solution, and I wanted to read a couple of quotes to you to begin with. Um, So this is from a press conference that Biden and uh, and Albanese actually did together. So Albo was sitting next to Biden when he said this um, statement, which I find quite extraordinary. He says, in our view, it has to be a two-state solution. That means a concentrated effort from all the parties, Israelis, Palestinians, regional partners, global leaders, to put us on a path toward peace. So that's the American vision for, um, for the solution to this uh, so-called Israel-Palestine conflict. And Penny Wong echoed that in a, uh, an article in The Guardian that she wrote. She said, ultimately, a just and enduring peace requires a two-state solution. 
Um, we also mentioned that the UN has passed countless motions on this issue and they never fail to include a call for a two-state solution in that. So to someone who has no idea what this phrase means, could you explain what, or at least what these people, Biden, Penny Wong, Albo, mean by a two-state solution? Well, I guess the um, kind of PR uh, mythical version of the two-state solution is fairly a simple concept. It's the idea that there should be uh, a state of Israel, a Jewish state for, uh, for of Israel alongside a Palestinian state and that supposedly these two states can just, you know, live in peace with each other and that that will somehow resolve um, the uh, quote-unquote conflict as they talk about it in the region. Uh, as we'll get into, that is um, a whole lot of uh, bullshit um, and it's kind of highlighted immediately, as you said, by the fact that people like Joe Biden, Anthony Albanese today, who right now are backing Israel's massacres and genocide in Gaza, can at the same time still uh, talk about a supposed two-state solution, which says a lot about uh, how unreal this thing really is. Mm. Well, let's get into a bit more of what's wrong with the two-state solution. Um, I think there's, well, there's heaps of problems with it. And obviously we'll get into, like you said, what bullshit it is. But I think first, it's not even that great in theory. Um, like, so let's talk about that. Like, can you really solve the problem of this, you know, racist settler state that's committed ethnic cleansing by maintaining its right to exist uh, alongside a, a Palestinian state? Yeah, I do think that's an important starting point because even if we accept the kind of mirage, this uh, version of a two-state solution which has never actually existed, but even if we accept that on face value, you can see that immediately it is uh, still a very unjust um, solution for the Palestinians. It accepts, to begin with, uh, the massive theft of Palestinian land, which uh, went along with the creation of Israel um, and the Nakba in 1948, the mass uh, you know, uh, ethnic cleansing that happened. Um, of Palestinian lands. It accepts that that should just be cemented into reality. Uh, it also denies the right of return for uh, you know, approximately 6 million Palestinian refugees that have been forced to flee into neighboring countries and around the world in a massive uh, refugee diaspora population of Palestinians. And thirdly, and I think this is very important as well, we've got to remember there's still 1.2 roughly million Palestinians living within the borders of what is today called Israel. Uh, if there was to be a two-state solution, what would happen to those people? You know, we know that Israel wants to define itself, has defined itself officially now as a Jewish state, and that there are multiple, you know, apartheid-style laws which oppress and discriminate against the Palestinian population and render them second-class citizens. So that's the other side of it. This uh, vision of a two-state solution never has any answers for those Palestinians still living within uh, the borders of so-called Israel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like a racist state gets to continue to exist with 1.2 million people they hate and want to expel uh, in their midst. The second major problem, which you've already mentioned, is that the two-state solution is just bullshit. <laughs> like even the people saying it don't really mean it. Um, I think the, the key reason is that there's only one state which controls historic Palestine, and that's Israel, right? Like, <laughs> Yes, this is very important because the narrative um, often put forward by the supporters of Israel is this idea that or oh, the Palestinians have been offered all these generous, you know, uh, things, a generous offer of a, of a two-state solution, et cetera, but they've just rejected that, you know, so, you know, what can Israel do, et cetera. But this is just a lie from start to finish. Uh, Israel never actually agreed to the creation of any kind of Palestinian state um, to begin with. Uh, they never agreed to that uh, in any uh, aspect of the peace process or at any moment in that whole process that went on for many years. 
Uh, and you only have to look at the uh, facts on the ground to see what a lie this has been. You know, at no point uh, in the whole uh, so-called peace process, the discussions of a two-state solution, has Israel ever pledged that it would remove its thousands and thousands of illegal settlements built uh, in occupied West Bank or in East Jerusalem? Never have they stopped that process of ethnic cleansing and land theft. Uh, nor, you know, never have they pledged that any uh, future so-called Palestinian, uh, you know, state could even control its own borders, its airspace, the things like the water supply, its own security, have an armed force, or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, and this has been the case ever since the beginning of, uh, you know, the discussions of a of a so-called two-state solution. Yeah, we'll get to the Oslo peace accords in a bit, but part of that was Israel said, "Oh, don't worry, we'll uh, manage your borders for you." It's like a, it's a gift to you that we, we will um, manage your, your borders. So, yeah, obviously denying the basic, um, you know, first principle of a, a nation state under, you know, in the capitalist systems that you can control your own borders. Um, I mean, the other thing that I always think is like the, the situation on the ground, and it's never really described like this, but if you think of the whole of historic Palestine, there's a majority of people who are Palestinians, millions and millions of them, like over 7 million, I think. And the vast majority of them don't get to vote in the elections for the government, the, the Knesset, the Israeli government, that has all of the control and power over pretty much every aspect of their lives. Like they control everything that happens in the West Bank. They survey the population. They obviously are able to control even water and electricity and internet uh, going into Gaza and so on. So actually it's just a deeply undemocratic and racist situation that exists over the whole of historic Palestine. Exactly. And this, this is uh, very deliberate on Israel's part. It's why they have not yet and did not formally annex the Gaza Strip and the West Bank yet, precisely because, uh, at least for a time, they wanted to maintain the pretense that they were a democracy internally, uh, but to, and they were determined to maintain a Jewish majority within the state of Israel. Uh, but they couldn't do that if they had formally annexed um, these populations in the West Bank and Gaza. So instead, they settled on this situation of permanent military occupation uh, with not even the pretense of any, you know, democratic rights being extended um, to the Palestinian people. And, you know, and again, we'll, we can go on to this, but it, it went along with the fact that Israel, again, never accepted that its borders uh, had stopped expanding. This is a fundamentally expansionist settler colonial project. Uh, and so Israel is determined, actually, that it will control all of the West Bank, um, that all of that will be, you know, uh, land only for Jewish Israelis, basically. Uh, and that is the whole, uh, you know, project of Israel. It's written into the political programs of all of the dominant Israeli political parties today. This isn't just me saying this. This is what they say uh, openly now, that that is their uh, plan, that's their policy, uh, that's their agenda. Yeah. Well, maybe it would be helpful to go through the the so-called peace process and what it has looked like. Um, so the Oslo Accords were signed in 1993 and then and another one in 1995 between Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. And at the time, these were lauded as the beginning of implementing the two-state solution and, you know, achieving a lasting peace in the region. So could you just explain to people how those came about, you know, what they actually resulted in? Yeah, so the peace process, as you said, and, and the discussions of a two-state solution came about ultimately because it suited uh, a range of the interests, um, you know, involved, uh, you know, in this situation. It suited uh, Israel. Um, firstly, because, and we have to remember that the peace process came on the back, actually, of what we call the First Intifada. And this was a massive democratic uprising of Palestinians that began in 1987, went for many years, 
which involved you know massive protests, huge strikes, uh, challenging the Israeli occupation, uh, you know making all kinds of demands for for Palestinian rights, for Palestinian self determination, all those things we've already touched on, uh, and it led to huge uh, protests around the world in support of the Palestinian um, you know cause. It was a real turning point in the Palestinian struggle. Uh, out of that, Israel came to realize uh, that they needed a different strategy to control the West Bank um, and Gaza. Uh, so they started to see the need to uh, adopt um, something like the two-state solution and, and create something we can go on to talk about called the Palestinian Authority. So it suited Israel's interest as a kind of a temporary measure, at least, uh, to make some concessions and control the Palestinian movement, or at least pretend to make some concessions. It also suited the West, and I think this is important. This is why, you know, Joe Biden and Anthony Albanese still talk about this thing that basically no one in Israel still talks about. It suited them very much because they wanted to be able to excuse and justify their support for Israel. Uh, and it's a very useful fig leaf for justifying and supporting their support for this apartheid racist state by pretending that Israel was engaging in some kind of peace process. You know, so... Uh, and that's why today they're still determined to talk about this thing, even while they're backing, you know, a genocide in Gaza. So the peace process brought together um, the leaders of some of the key Palestinian um, organizations that had, you know, previously uh, maintained some kind of struggle for liberation, in particular, the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization, which was an umbrella group of different Palestinian organizations. The leading organization in that was Fatah, and the, you know, the leader of that was Yasser Arafat. So he uh, stepped forward to represent um, the Palestinian people in these so-called peace negotiations, um, you know, got together with, at the time, Yitzhak Rabin, Israeli prime minister, uh, and they got together and uh, shook hands with Bill Clinton and uh, set about supposedly um, negotiating the creation of a future Palestinian state. Now, as I've already said, Israel actually never made a single concession um, in the direction of actually creating anything like a Palestinian state. So all the concessions actually were made by the Palestinians, um, by Yasser Arafat on behalf of the Palestinians anyway. Uh, and this was a really historic setback, I think, for the Palestinian struggle because the kinds of things that uh, Arafat agreed to in that peace process uh, abandoned so many of the historic uh, you know, national demands of the Palestinian people. So they started to give up on any demand around the right of return for Palestinian refugees. They accepted uh, the the so-called right of Israel to exist and defend itself. So they, yeah, giving uh, legitimacy actually to the entire historic injustice um, that was the creation of Israel and the, and the Nakba in 1948 uh, and so on. And they accepted that they would take uh, charge of ensuring Palestinians basically no longer threatened the state of Israel. So they abandoned the armed struggle uh, and so on. And in return, as I said, basically got nothing. Um, we can talk about the Palestinian Authority. They did get something in return. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to move on to. Um, so, well, maybe if you can just explain what the Palestinian Authority uh, was, which was obviously created in these in these um, peace processes, and and it was meant to be the basis for this Palestinian state as part of the two state solution. Yeah. So it was set up again, supposedly as uh, a kind of. Uh, interim body that would begin to lay the basis for a future Palestinian state. You know, so it was a, a vast kind of bureaucracy, you know, which oversaw, you know, in the tiny, um, tiny percentage of territory in the West Bank that was handed over to nominal control 
by the Palestinian Authority um, under the peace process. The Palestinian Authority assumed, you know, control of things like education, uh, you know, welfare provision, uh, and that kind of thing, uh, and a whole series of other just basic kind of uh, bureaucratic tasks. But also at its core was a vast police force, um, again presided over by, you know, the political leadership, people like Yasser Arafat and Fatah. Uh, and this, you know, vast police force with funding from the United States, with funding from Israel, funding from Gulf um, states, uh, set about, as I said, basically taking on the role of policing the Palestinian population effectively on behalf of Israel. Um, so that's the situation, uh, you know, which was created under the Palestinian Authority and which uh, lives on today. And we've seen even just in recent days, um, big protests break out in the West Bank uh, particularly after, for example, um, Israel's bombing of the hospitals and so on in the Gaza Strip. And those protests have been repressed, not by Israeli forces primarily, but by the forces of the Palestinian Authority. So they are doing exactly the kind of dirty work for Israel um, that Israel envisioned that they would when they began this peace process uh, and this so-called two-state solution way back in the early 1990s. Yeah. Uh, and people in the West Bank, Palestinians know that. The Palestinian Authority is like, deeply hated um, and seen as a kind of, um, you know, doing the dirty work of Israel basically in the West Bank, um, you know, acting as their police force, repressing protests that might actually aim any of its, uh, any of their fire at, at Israel. Um, so what I wanted to talk a bit more about the West Bank generally because, I mean, obviously Gaza is under just kind of full lockdown military occupation. The West Bank is as well, but there's kind of um, this idea that, the West Bank is the basis of the, the mini state of Palestine, you know, where the Palestinian Authority would be the government. Can you tell us what the situation there kind of says about the viability of the two-state solution? Yeah, the clearest um, statistic, which by itself just paints the real picture, is to understand that the number of, you know, j exclusive Jewish-Israeli settlers uh, in the West Bank uh, actually doubled in the 20 years since the peace, su supposed peace process began in 1993. So, you know, this whole process, which supposedly is laying the basis for a future Palestinian state, actually is doing the exact opposite. It's facilitating the ongoing expansion of Israeli control over Palestinian land. Um, so, you know, by 2003, there was something like half a million uh, illegal Israeli settlers um, in the West Bank. Today, that number is up to around 700,000. Um, in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. And along with that has gone the demolition of tens of thousands of Palestinian houses, thousands of Palestinians driven off their land. And of course, when we talk about Israeli settlements in the West Bank, we're not talking about, you know, people just, just want to come and live with Palestinians and be their neighbors. No, no, no. These are militarized, exclusive uh, settlements built usually on hilltops as part of, you know, quasi-military outposts. They are populated by extremist settlers who view the Palestinians as uh, barely human beings, who view themselves as the chosen people. Um, so incredibly racist, you know, incredible uh, amounts of kind of religious zealotry and so on, um, and in incredible violence, you know, and we've seen that increasing in recent uh, years, the violence of these settlers against the Palestinian population, because again, they understand very well that their role is to be there as an occupying force and a force that is uh, designed to terrorize the remaining Palestinians in the West Bank um, to, to leave um, so that more and more uh, settlers can move in and Israel can complete um, their ethnic cleansing of the West Bank. So that's the process there. 
On top of that, of course, is the role of the Israeli state still, which never left the West Bank at all, controls, as we said before, all of the borders, all of the airspace, uh, everything basically. The West Bank is crisscrossed with roads that only uh, Israeli or Jewish Israeli people can use or that only the Israeli occupying forces can use. Um, There are hundreds and hundreds of checkpoints um, dotted throughout the West Bank so that a Palestinian who wants to travel to the village next door, maybe to visit their family or to work or to go to a hospital, uh, what should take a 10-minute drive in the car can end up taking hours and hours and hours and having to cross through multiple uh, Israeli checkpoints where the Israeli soldiers routinely, deliberately delay, dehumanize, uh, refuse people entry. And there's all kinds of you know horrific stories over the previous decades where you know, uh, Palestinian women have been forced to give birth on the side of a road, you know, because the Israeli soldiers refused to let them through the checkpoint to get to a hospital, uh, you know, many stories like that. Um, so this is what the West Bank actually looks like. Uh, far from any skerrick of genuine Palestinian self-determination, this is still a place utterly controlled at every level um, by the Israeli military. Yeah, I mean, like we said earlier in this episode, it's more like a prison than um, the basis for some kind of uh, Palestinian state. And that prison is obviously controlled by Israel. Um, So I guess you have kind of started to mention this, but is Israel for a two-state solution? You know, are they interested in recognising a Palestinian state? Maybe it's obvious at this point. (laughs) No, so yeah, as we've talked about, I think the the so-called peace process uh, actually was just a fig leaf for ongoing Israeli expansionism. That's what it was from day one. Uh, and by creating this uh, mirage of a peace process, it gave them cover to just continue their settlement building. And then any you know supposed breakdown in the peace process, they just blamed on the Palestinians for not making enough concessions or you know for continuing to resist, um, all the rest of it. Uh, so yeah, there wasn't a single day when Israel stopped bulldozing Palestinian homes, building more settlements, um, and tightening their grip, um, on the West Bank. So, uh, yeah, Israel had never had any intention of allowing a Palestinian state of any, any meaningful way to be formed. Um, and that's what we've seen, uh, play out. And that's why, you know, like, you know, as I said earlier, like it's basically only Western politicians and the media and the Palestinian Authority are basically the only people who still talk about a two-state solution. No one in Israel really believes that this is still on the agenda. No, none of the key Israeli political parties are for it. Um, Netanyahu has basically devoted his life to making it an impossibility, uh, and that's what's uh, playing out right now. The Palestinian Authority still talk about it because, you know, we alluded to this before, they're a repressive force of the Palestinians in the West Bank, but also it has actually allowed a small minority of Palestinians to, to grow rich. There's a Palestinian capitalist class uh, in the West Bank uh, who, you know, profit from their control, um, their very limited control that they have gained through this process uh, and have profited from aid money and all the rest of it. So, uh, yeah, there's a class division, you know, within Palestinian society as there is everywhere else. Um, so there is an interest amongst that section of Palestinians to maintain this illusion still of a two-state solution and a peace process. But I think increasing numbers of Palestinians, uh, you know, don't believe this. And as you said, the Palestinian Authority has lost a lot of credibility amongst Palestinians. Um, and incidentally, that's the kind of backstory to understanding why Hamas started to gain more support amongst the Palestinian population. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, just on Israel, I think it's quite ironic that in the last uh, few weeks, the 
the slogan that we chant often at pro-Palestinian demonstrations of from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free has been really demonized. But actually from the river to the sea, there will only be one state called Israel is basically the um, the program of Likud, the, uh, the leading party in the Israeli Knesset. And like you said, all of the uh, major parties of the of Israeli politics kind of you know agree with that. What they actually think about the West Bank is it should be Israel, should be part of Israel, and it's just annoying that there are these pesky millions of Palestinians um, dotted throughout it. And so, like you said, they've used those checkpoints and walls and uh, and everything else to steal as much of that land as possible. It's why uh, people might have seen and you should look it up online the disappearing Palestine map that just shows how uh, it's not even like a single block on the map anymore with the West Bank. It's just little kind of dots um, of, of which, you know, supposedly parts of this are Palestine and the rest of it is Israel. And yes, if, if Israel got its way, uh, they would get rid of the entire um, Palestinian, you know, uh, the, the entire part of that that is supposedly Palestine. So I guess you have, you know, uh, answered this to some extent as well, but could you talk a bit more about why politicians in the West, you know, the UN are so keen to throw around this idea of, of the two-state solution and why, I guess, in the last couple of weeks it started to raise its head again as a slogan? Well, as I said, I think for them this is a fig leaf for uh, their policy of ongoing support for Israel. And, uh, you know, we should remember that the United States gives something like $3.8 billion every year to the Israeli military We've seen just in the last four weeks as Israel rains down bombs on Palestinian children, on civilians, on hospitals, on schools, on mosques, on journalists, on aid workers, um, that many of those bombs are made or funded at least by the United States. Something like 20% of Israel's military budget is directly paid by the United States of America. Um, so, you know, yeah, when, when these states are supporting that, they're supporting this horrific massacres in the Gaza Strip. What kind of two-state are they talking about? It just shows how this whole thing is a myth. You know, so they, they maintain this illusion because it's a way of presenting themselves as though they are, you know, somehow uh, negotiating a reasonable outcome for everyone, that they supposedly don't just uh, support genocide against the Palestinian people, but their every action says the opposite. Their every action giving carte blanche to Israel right now and Netanyahu, this far-right leader, um, to carry out these horrific massacres uh, tells you the real story. Um, and that's the real story of the two-state solution, which is, as I said, this was, thing was only ever a fig leaf to cover the real agenda of ongoing Israeli expansionism at the expense of the Palestinian people. Mm. And I think in the last few weeks, you know, we've seen the massive protests around the world and, like, people are obviously just furious watching now over 10,000 people be murdered, um, on, you know, in front of their eyes, on their screens, uh, night after night. And I just think, you know, the this is a way for these politicians that are cheering that on, basically, to cover their tracks and say, oh, no, we care about, like, a Palestinian, you know, right to self-determination. Of course, every state has the right to uh, to exist or whatever. You know, it's just such bullshit. As you said, what they're doing in reality, and actions speak louder than words, is to fund um, the ongoing genocide that Israel's carrying out. So lastly, I guess, people might be wondering what socialists are actually for if we are not for a two-state solution either in theory or the, um, you know, bullshit practice of the two-state solution as it's been carried out throughout this uh, so-called peace process. So what, what are we actually for? The starting point, um, as I've alluded to, is that understanding what Israel actually is as a state. Uh, it's a state that 
is both a settler colonial state built on the ethnic cleansing, the genocide of the Palestinian population, which is determined to continue expanding uh, and uh, complete what it sees as its control, its, its rightful control, uh, as he said, from the river to the sea, or what they, the early Zionist leaders used to call Eretz Israel, um, Greater Israel. Uh, so that's one dynamic of what Israel is doing. Uh, and that's very important to understand. It means that we've got to see that that process will not be stopped unless or until this whole state of Israel itself is actually overthrown. Uh, secondly, you know, that process is backed up by the imperialist powers, which is what allows Israel to get away with these crimes uh, against the Palestinians. So, yes, that's why, like, uh, for us, we've always opposed um, the two-state solution because, as I said earlier, this was a huge uh, capitulation by the leaders of the PLO uh, to uh, that entire expansionist project of Israel. Uh, and because of everything we've talked about, the two-state solution was always an illusion um, which was going to allow continued Israeli expansionism. In its place, uh, you know, for many years we used to talk about uh, that we instead are for a one-state solution. By that we meant, we meant uh, the slogan was a democratic, secular state where uh, Jews and Arabs, Jews and Palestinians could live side by side uh, in, in, with equality, you know. Um, that was the basic kind of democratic position put forward to say uh, a couple of things. One, it was about rejecting, as I said, the uh, backdowns of the PLO and accepting the current uh, racist state of Israel and its supposed right to exist. We said, no, no racist state, no ethno state has a right to exist. Um, it should be overthrown and instead people should live uh, in equality. Um, so that was the basic demand of the one state solution. And it was also about saying that obviously in our vision for a future more equal society uh, in Palestine, we see a place for the Jewish population. It's not at all our argument that the destruction of the state of Israel has to mean anything bad for the Jewish people who live in that part of the world. They also, of course, have a right to live in peace and equality. So that was the basis for uh, the one-state solution. I think we've got to see, uh, you know, and th there's a lot to be said for that. There's a, that's a very good uh, response, I think, to many of the, uh, you know, betrayals of the two-state solution. But it itself is also a limited kind of vision um, in a couple of ways. I think, firstly, this is not exactly a, a socialist solution to talk about, you know, that we're for a single you know, democratic secular state, because it's still at the end of the day is envisioning a capitalist state. And I think if you look at all the states around the world that have been formed uh, after the colonial or imperialist powers were kicked out, or if you look at South Africa today after the overthrow of apartheid, these are hardly uh, models of good societies that we um, aspire to, to be our endpoint of society. Uh, we are socialists. We want societies of genuine uh, liberation and genuine equality. Um, which clearly cannot be achieved uh, within the framework of capitalism. So, you know, so that's one part of it, that uh, even if a Palestinian state could be created and Israel, the apartheid state of Israel, overthrown, this certainly would not be the end of the story because you just have to look at the neighbouring Arab states to see, again, these are not visions of uh, genuine liberation. That's why we're socialists. Um, secondly, uh, having the kind of uh, vision of a democratic, secular, one-state solution uh, also doesn't really tell you that much necessarily about what's the strategy for actually uh, arriving at that. And there's more to be said about that, about you know, how can we actually fight um, for Palestinian liberation? Um, 
Yeah, well, go on, Josh. Like, what's our, um, you know, what's the socialist vision for how Palestine can be liberated? Because it's people look at this situation and see it as very intractable, and it's why I think even some left-wing people might go, maybe a two-state solution is the best that can that can come out of this, you know, horrible situation. Mm. Well, it's important to start, of course, from the the fact of mass Palestinian resistance. You know that there are still, of course, uh, six or seven million Palestinians living within the borders of historic Palestine, um, whether they're within um, the so-called state of Israel or in the West Bank or in Gaza or in East Jerusalem. And, you know, it's just more obvious than ever that those millions of Palestinians have not, have never given up their aspirations to liberation, uh, are prepared to fight and are prepared to die, you know, for the cause of Palestinian uh, liberation. So that's an important starting point. The Palestinians certainly um, have not given up the struggle uh, for Palestinian liberation. But we have to see as well, um, the sheer uh, armed might of the state of Israel backed up by the major imperialist powers means that a lot of the strategies that have been pursued by um, various Palestinian political organizations over the years, I think have not been able to achieve Palestinian liberations. In particular, the armed struggle approach uh, just cannot by itself defeat um, the armed might of the state of Israel. Um, so that's why for socialists, we've always looked to, uh, you know, to try to find, well, what is the power actually that could liberate the Palestinians? And a lot of uh, Palestinian or Arab nationalists previously have looked to the neighboring Arab states uh, to be the force that could come in and help Palestinians fight for liberation. Unfortunately, as I've alluded to, those states are capitalist states. They're ruled by billionaires, repressive military regimes. Who have actually nothing in common with the Palestinian ordinary people, let alone their own people, uh, who have much more in common with the repressive capitalist state of Israel and themselves have, you know, uh, friendly deals with the United States empire or other imperialist powers. So these uh, neighboring Arab states uh, have always actually betrayed the Palestinian cause and can't be seen as a genuine force um, that's going to help liberate the Palestinians. Uh, so for socialists, that means we've always looked instead to the Arab working classes as the key force who do have both an interest and the power in fighting for liberation, both for their own liberation as a class and uh, for the liberation of the Palestinians, who obviously they uh, sympathize with, but also see uh, as having a common interest and a common struggle alongside. So that's always been our argument for how Palestinian liberation can achieve, that it has to be part of a more region-wide massive revolutionary uprising by the Arab masses, led by the Arab working class. And that inevitably will be a fight not just for, uh, you know, to kick out the various, you know, imperialist and colonial powers like Israel, but it will have to be a fight for socialism. It'll have to be a fight uh, that actually takes on and overthrows the various Arab states and the capitalist classes in those regions who, uh, as we know today, are a key uh, allies and bulwark for Israel. You know, you just have to look at Egypt to understand that you know, a key ally um, for the state of Israel has been the Egyptian military regime. So a revolution in the Middle East uh, of workers, you know, you know, which we started to see the potential of with the Arab Spring uprisings in 2011, um, is I think the way that ultimately Palestine can be liberated. Great. Thanks for joining me, Josh. Thank you. The way of the revolution 
right now we are seeing a really historic outpouring of solidarity uh, for the Palestinians. Some of the biggest protests, in fact, the biggest protests in solidarity with Palestine in Australian history, uh, in London, uh, hundreds of thousands of people coming out to protest week after week. And I think it's really important, particularly in, in Western countries that back Israel down the line, that these protests are breaking through, um, you know, the wall-to-wall pro-Israeli coverage in the media, wall-to-wall support uh, by Western leaders for Israel's war crimes uh, and showing that, you know, in our, in our thousands, in our millions, uh, people stand with the Palestinians. And uh, we're really proud in Socialist Alternative to be playing a really central role in organising uh, these demonstrations in basically every major city um, in Australia. And I think it's really important that people uh, continue to come out, uh, continue to call out the support our governments show for Israel, um, and we just need to keep the pressure up. So if you're listening to this at home, uh, get along to one of these um, historic uh, pro-Palestine demonstrations that are happening every single week in every major city. Definitely. And I think it's it's even more historic because there's been basically a complete media blackout on these on these protests um, or they've just been viciously slandered in the press as well. So the the kind of ideological apparatus in, in Australia is going into overdrive to try and uh, discourage people from being part of the pro-Palestine movement. Um, so, for example, a news.com.au article, which is a uh, particularly egregious, said that thousands attend pro-Palestine rally in Melbourne while police investigate Hitler posters in Sydney, as though you're meant to draw some links between these two completely unrelated uh, events. Uh, And they're trying to really downplay, you know, this isn't just thousands, we're talking like 50,000 people uh, in Melbourne, in Sydney, tens of thousands across the whole country. So it's been incredible to see people continue to come out and demonstrate in their tens of thousands despite that media blackout and the slander. Um, So we definitely need to keep getting people to those. And I think as well we need more socialists. We need to keep building the socialist movement in this country as part of building the campaign in solidarity with Palestine. It's partly because we need committed activists to actually build these pro-Palestine rallies, to put up all the posters, to leaflet, to get the word out, to convince new people to come along and get involved. But it's also, I think, because movements need radical ideas. Uh, And we've talked about some of these ideas throughout the podcast, but you know, we need uh, people who can link this issue of Palestine, uh, of, of the horror that we're seeing in Gaza to the entire capitalist system. That's what we really need to get rid of. And that means building a socialist movement here and everywhere. So if you're listening at home, as well as coming out to, you know, some of the pro-Palestine protests that are happening, you know, every weekend, some of the snap actions that are happening, I know students of Palestine putting on protests outside Albanese's office every Friday. You should get along to all of those demonstrations, but also uh, get involved in the socialist movement as well. We need to uh, uh, build the socialist wing of the pro-Palestine movement. If you're interested in checking out the socialist left and helping us build the Palestine solidarity movement, check out the show notes. Uh, You can leave your details on our stay in touch form to hear about activist events coming up in a city near you. Thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, we have a world to win. 